everybody, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Good morning, everybody. It's a Everybody's going to say it's a beautiful day in South Florida. I heard it was, it was snowing up in Canada, and I've uh, got to say I like the wet drips, not the little snowflakes anymore, so stay warm to our guests in Canada. Today is a really interesting day for me. I have a guest today that reached out to me a year ago and sent a picture of him standing on stage with Tamron Hall, and I'm thinking, we have something in common, and it may just be the scam, but it was definitely standing on stage with Tamron Hall. So we'll talk about that a little bit, but everybody, I'd like to welcome my guest today, Dr. Jonathan David Farley. And Jonathan, are you there? I am, yes. Well, I've got to tell you, Jonathan, I'm really excited to have you here today because I have very, actually, you're the very first male scam survivor that has come forward and talked to us. Uh, and I give you so much credit for doing that. I think you're very brave for doing that. And Thank you for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, Jonathan's coming to us from upstate New York, up in Rockport, New York. Uh, he's a professor. He's got an incredible bio, you guys, and I don't usually read bios, but I've got to read something here because it says, Jonathan Farley is one of the most impressive young mathematicians. And that was from a Harvard professor. From Then he was named... Uh, one of 15 people who have shaped the global conversation about science in 2005. He's got some incredible accolades, and as a professor, unbelievable. So we are going to dispel the myth that scam victims are stupid, are uneducated, are bumpkins from the middle of nowhere, which, of course, we all know that because we've talked about that for years. So even the most brilliant get taken. And it's because the most brilliant also have big hearts. And Jonathan, I'd like to welcome you as a guest, welcome you as a professor, welcome you as a, as a survivor of something that I didn't know much about. You hear about it. You hear about the Russian bride thing. Um, but I want to dispel some of the myths. I want to give some of the particulars of what happened uh, and hear your story. And also, you know, we're going to talk about recovery and being a survivor of something like this and get how we can get past the, the victim blame. So briefly, can you just tell us where were you when this happened? Where, where, where were you in your life and, and what were you doing that would t lead you to looking for a wife? 
Actually, I have been interested in that for decades, but uh, in 2011 or thereabouts, I was uh, still in a long odyssey where I had uh, left a permanent position at Vanderbilt University because I was being attacked by Klan supporters. That's another story. Oh, dear. Google that. Um, I didn't realize that my odyssey uh, fleeing Nashville would last that long, but I realized that year after year I was not knowing where I was going to be the next year. And, and so I thought, well, that I, I had been using that as an excuse to not really uh, seek someone because I thought, well, how can I actually have a permanent relationship if I am going to be moving in a few months or, or in a year's time? So eventually I said, you know what? Uh, I just, I can't wait anymore. I was about 41, 42. And so I just, I had read a story about a Russian mail order bride service in Canada. The Canadian government was, was pretty upset about it because they thought it was somehow human trafficking. And so, uh, and, and I have to be honest, uh, I had seen a story on Tyra Banks' old TV show years and years ago, and I had the same kind of impression. I thought, who are, who are these women? They must be uh, professionals, and not professional women, but, you know, the type of professional. Right. Um, right. Because if, if they're just going to pick some guy and, and, and marry him. Uh, so I had that impression, but then when I looked into what was going on in Canada, I realized, oh, no, that's, that's not the case at all. And I actually uh, wound up utilizing the very same uh, mail-order bride service that the Canadian government was upset with. And I had a couple of conversations with women, you know, including about poetry and so forth. Um, and so I realized that, yeah, I think actually I was wrong, that it's just a different culture. Uh, and uh, so what I wound up doing was I, I did more research. And this is where being too analytical could actually hurt you. I read many books on these scams. I, uh, I found that one of the most reliable mail-order bride services, or the one with the best reputation, was Elena's Models, elenasmodels.com. And so I thought, uh, let me uh, utilize that business. Uh, and I actually did wind up uh, either in person or via Skype communicating with about half a dozen uh, women, including what I really liked. And I actually visited uh, that one in the city of Omsk in Siberia, but it didn't work out. Uh, and so at the end of the month-long stay that I, I spent there in the city of Omsk, I thought, you know what, I traveled 5,000 miles here. This is the, uh, the end of uh, a, a journey of maybe six months. Uh, I feel like I would, I would be wasting my, my time. So I then just sent emails to every one of the women using elenasmodels.com in the city of Omsk uh, in the, my last day or two in Omsk. And exactly one of them responded. And that was the woman I, uh, I then met in person in a cafe and whom I married three years later. And in, within those three years, though, you were in the States, she was over there, you were going back and forth. How did that work? Yeah, so I was going back and forth. So uh, this was uh, um, March 2013, and I uh, happened to, I got invited to speak at a Czech university a few months later, and then I got this message from Alona Dauksha, um, the name of the woman I married, or the name she used, I should point out. Okay. Um, the, name of the, the name she used. Uh, and she said, would you like to meet my parents? 
And so since I was already in Central Europe, I could take a Turkish Airlines flight to, uh, to Turkey. And I was able to meet the people that she said were her parents. And then I went back to uh, the Czech Republic. And then she wrote me again and uh, said, would I like to spend more time with them? And so I did that again. And so I spent about, uh, my recollection is, isn't going to be completely accurate of so many years ago. Unfortunately, I, I have forgotten a lot of the bad stuff. But I spent about two or three weeks uh, in the city of Alanya, Turkey, uh, with Alona uh, and the people she said were her parents, uh, getting to know them. Then there was a long period of about six months when we only communicated by Skype, and that was actually uh, strange, and there were some red flags uh, uh, that took place there. I'll mention one of them. So if people are listening and they're wondering, how can I avoid this? Uh, pay attention. I'll give you some trite advice. It sounds trite, but trust your gut <laughs> because pay you should pay attention to those red flags. One of the red flags was that Alona said she, during that six-month period that she couldn't uh, turn on her camera. Her camera didn't work. And uh, she also only wanted to Skype very rarely. That, I guess, at that stage wasn't extraordinary because even though we'd spent three weeks together, it was only three weeks. But uh, at one point she said she was in a place called, I think, Altai with her parents. And I asked her to send photos. And instead she, she sent me a stock photo mm. of the place. Uh, and the reason why that should have been a red flag is that, what, was she trying to hide something? She, at first I thought she just didn't understand what I meant, but I thought that was, you know, like I think she did and just didn't want to send a photo because maybe she wasn't, in fact, with her parents in Altai. Maybe, in fact, she was somewhere else scamming someone else. But you but didn't know that at the time, Jonathan. She was, what, in her early 20s? So, again, she, would, uh, cl she claimed that she was 20 when I met her, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but the, uh, in about six months after I met uh, her and the people she said were her parents, or met up with her again and met the people that she said were her parents, uh, I arranged to see her again in Turkey, and then I spent about two weeks uh, with her in um, the... Uh, in Alanya, Turkey, uh, which is a resort with a resort city with lots of Russians, and also in Istanbul. Um, and this is what I found very interesting. Now, you sent her a questionnaire with 250 questions. Yes, that's pretty so I'd thorough. Read a book, yeah, I'd, I'd read a book on what you should do if you want to marry. Uh, a, a Russian woman. I read several of those books, in fact, and one of them did have this list of 255 questionnaires. It was written by a man who uh, said he had actually done this. I guess he, he, he wrote it. He must have written it with his wife. Uh, and so, yeah, there are questions like, uh, how many children would you like to have? Um, uh, I don't remember all the questions now. This, this really would have been back in 2013. But did but, she answer them? And actually, uh, to my surprise, she did. Now, on this website, elenasmodels.com, I, 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 I wrote perhaps 500 women. And got, as I said, I, I was able to either meet in person or Skype with about half a dozen, which may sound like a low batting average, but on match.com, uh, uh, my 
latest bout with Match.com, I sent about 2,000 messages and, and got maybe five responses. <laughs> and I not, think we ought to keep days, you off of online dating. <laughs> well, the, um, actually, I think a lot of men have, have a low batting average on these, on these websites. Oh, that's absolutely. That from online forums. But the, uh, so with uh, this site, even though there, there are um, many women, I, I did get responses. And she was the, Alona was the only one to answer all the questions. Hmm. Um, some women just said, I don't feel like answering these questions. Others would only answer a few of them. Uh, but Alona answered all of them. And this is where I fooled myself with overanalyzing everything. I, uh, I saw that she didn't answer, she answered some questions in ways that uh, a woman ought to know the man wouldn't necessarily like. <laughs> and so I thought, well, if she's really just trying to rope me in, she would answer every question exactly in the way that she would think I would want to see, uh, which could give me answers that she would think I would want to see. And so I had fooled myself into thinking, oh, yeah, she's, she's genuine because, or at least that's one uh, point in her favor, uh, that she's genuine because she was able to answer, uh, she was answering these questions, not in the way that you would expect, but she did answer all the questions. And as for her age, ultimately, um, three years after this, when I discovered the, the whole plot, I thought, you know what, she was so good at this and so good at fooling me, I'd be surprised if this was her first time. Uh, and so I thought, could she really have been 20 in 2013 and able to pull all this off. It's possible, I guess, but it struck me as uh, unusual. uh, And so that's why I wonder if she, in fact, was a lot older than that. Well, in hindsight, it's 2020. And so now that questionnaire is a great playbook for the rest of that organization because they've got the answers. And, And but going into it, Jonathan, I mean, I'm looking back, and I, you, you know my story, too, where I was involved with a guy for two years online. Um, I never saw him. And I really, I went into the online dating, though, completely transparent and honest and trusting, never, ever heard, hearing about a scam. So when you went into the dating, and especially in the Russian bride thing, where you, you knew that there was some scam in the the whole process. Did you have any anticipation that they might have been were going to be scammed? And and did she do anything that at the beginning? I mean, I know she didn't ask for money. Can you kind of go into that about how she didn't ask for money, which is what typically online scamming, you know, they ask re- relatively quickly. What was the story yes. with her and the money? Yeah, that was the most brilliant part of the scam, and that's where I got fooled, and that's probably why they do it that way. And I'm, I'm using the plural because in all of my investigations, when I was looking into scams involving Russian mail-order brides before I, I got involved in this process, I uh, never came across any hint that they work in these groups, which mm-hmm. we'll call mafias because Alona said she was connected to the Russian mafia. This was about uh, a week before um, I sent her away. And uh, so um, after we had gotten married, after she'd come to the United States. So I had no clue. I I thought that in places in Nigeria, there might be these rooms where people are sending the fake messages. Uh, I thought that um, someone, a a, a woman might 
ask for money and then not come. There was a, a man, a, a chef in the UK, whose story I read about in the Daily Mail, um, who that happened to. The woman may have existed, but she just never came. She asked for money saying she was going to come and then never came. Uh, I actually offered to send that guy some, some of the money he lost, quite frankly, but he, I never heard back from the <laughs> reporter who wrote the story. Um, and the, uh, but I thought that if you see them, if you meet them, it's just them. And so my assessment of whether or not she was going to be scamming me was going to be based on what I thought she was capable of doing. And I actually didn't think she was capable of pulling off a scam. Again, I fooled myself. For example, when we went to Istanbul, we uh, were traveling in the city trying to find the aquarium, and she didn't know basic directions. Uh, or another time in Alanya, we were supposed to meet at a particular beach. The beaches were numbered. Uh, and uh, so we were supposed to meet at beach number five in Alanya, and she went to beach number five in another town. <laughs> and, and so this kind of thing kept happening. And I thought, well, if she can't even find her way around places, uh, there's no way she could organize some complicated scam. But getting back to the money, yes, she never asked for money. Now, yes, I had to ha obviously have some money in order to travel to meet her in uh, Turkey and Italy and France. Um, but uh, she never said, hey, can you send me this money until she had gotten the preliminary approval for the fiancé visa. This would be three years after I met her and she needed to go to Moscow, she said, and, and this is believable, in order to do the interviews, in order to do a medical exam. Uh, these things cost money. Staying in a hotel would, for a week would cost money. And the amount of money she asked for was about $2,000, which I thought was a reasonable amount. And so I uh, wired that. Um, the only weird thing about that was at first she wanted me to wire it to some unknown people. And I didn't want to do that. But then she gave me the, the name of the person she said was her father, who had the same last name she had. Uh, and so, and, and, I, and I'd met that person or a person who used that name. And so I wired the money to that person. Um, and, uh, but that was it. Uh, the, the money request came after she arrived in the United States. And then she started spending a huge amount. But I, while the amount that she wanted to spend floored me, I uh, was prepared because the books on Russian Mail or Bride say that, hey, look, uh, you can't be, uh, you can't skimp because the Russian women, according to these books, the Russian women would think you are greedy or um, what they mean, the word they use when they mean stingy. And, mm. But after a while, don't worry, the book said, uh, Russian wives will adjust to America, and, and before you know it, even they will be using coupons, and they'll understand. And so I thought, since uh, this was just the first couple of months, I had brought her 5,000 miles away from her home. I, I wasn't trying to buy her affection, but I wanted my wife in a new country to be happy, and so I, I spent the money. For example... Uh, she didn't like my apartment, even though I had sent her photographs of it, had told her of the plan to stay in that apartment for another year, had sent her even a floor plan. She didn't like it. It was too small. And so I rented another apartment. And because we couldn't move into that other apartment since it had no furniture yet, I then rented a third apartment, <laughs> which was furnished. So I had three apartments at once. 
but uh, uh, to make her uh, happy. And, and that involved, obviously, um, some expense. Uh, so, and uh, then when she, um, so I, I won't belabor the point, but that's where the spending actually was. So throughout this whole adventure, were you still, you, you were working? Uh, yes. So this was another aspect of it which disarmed me and made me actually think she was not trying to scam me. Because uh, not only was she not uh, asking for money, uh, she also didn't seem to be that curious about uh, my job. I mean, she would ask me, how's your job? Uh, but she wasn't thinking, okay, how much does this guy make? Now, ultimately, when you apply for the fiancé visa, you have to include financial information. So I guess she could have seen it from that. But she wasn't asking me about it. At one stage, the year I met her in 2013, I was even deciding between uh, teaching in China and uh, oh, that was that was actually one of the options that I had for the next academic year, and you know, teaching in school in a school. And she didn't respond by going, "Oh, wait a minute, you mean you're not going to be in America?" She didn't respond by saying, "Oh, wait, you mean you're just going to be a school teacher in, in China?" Uh, where they probably don't pay very much compared to America or maybe not even much compared to Russia. She didn't reply like that at all. She replied like, um, you know, it's, it, it wasn't that significant to her, which reinforced in my mind the idea that, yeah, she actually likes me. <laughs> she's, wow. she's willing to, you know, if I wind up moving to China, that's fine with her. Um, I understand yeah. that because that, that actually came up in my scam where, uh, where he had asked, you know, would I be willing to move? And, and mm -hmm. I was, you know, I'm in Florida, I have a company down here, but I'm like, I'm up for the adventure. Why not? Mm -hmm. so, so that was something that, you know, she was willing to do. Of course, looking back, maybe she was just willing to go anywhere just to get out of Russia. And, and <clears throat> that's the other thing about, you know, she probably came from very little, even though she, the family portrayed to have some money, but she probably had very little. So coming to the United States is over, uh, sometimes overwhelming with the availability of stuff. I, I have two friends down here that, Actually, we used to tease them about being Russian brides. They're actually Russian women, and they were dating some of my husband's um, single friends. And initially, we're like, guys, what are you doing with these women? You know, they're very pretty, and they were well educated. But we're like, what are you doing? Well, it turns out they're lovely women, um, but not involved in in this particular type of a thing. But they did come over here to the United States to get married. So that's changed a little. I'm sure Tim will talk about this a little bit too, but you can't actually come to the States and, and get married and get a visa right away. Isn't that correct? Haven't they kind of changed that so that there's not this influx of Russian brides getting visas and staying here? Actually, unfortunately, it seems as if the various agencies, FBI, um, the U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, even Border Patrol, they seem to be singularly uninterested in this problem. There is a website where you can report scams if they involve the Internet. But otherwise, uh, during all the time that I've written uh, people in the FBI and in these other agencies, I've not gotten a single response. I wrote a couple of embassies because, at, um, to my surprise, I learned after the fact that Alona Dauksha had uh, applied for Lithuanian citizenship. Um, and uh, apparently received it in 2016. And uh, so I wrote the embassy in Vilnius, and then they wrote back asking for more information. But no one else in the U.S. government has responded. But I want to say something about um, my wife's um, 
uh, wealth or lack of it. Obviously, at this stage, I can't say I know anything about her. My mm-hmm. ex-wife, actually, we got a divorce. I can't say anything about her. Uh, but she gave the impression of being wealthier than I was. When, mm-hmm. I, visited the, uh, when I visited her in Alanya, Turkey, her parents had, or the parent, people she said were her parents, had a posh apartment about 50 yards from the Mediterranean. It was, um, uh, so I thought, hey, you know, these people are richer than I am, and that uh, Alona would be taking a step down financially to be with me. Uh, and even when I went to Ansk in Siberia, now, uh, I didn't see all aspects of the city, but as far as I know, the place, the apartment that I had there wasn't in a, any special area. But I actually didn't notice any difference between Omsk and a typical American city. In fact, it's certainly a lot better than a, a city like Baltimore, where I teach. Uh, so... Uh, I know that in the American media, people talk about how poor Russia is, and maybe people who have traveled more extensively in Russia can confirm that, but I saw nothing like that when I was in Omsk. It was an ordinary city in Siberia, as far as I know, and it looked like a typical American city. They had malls, they had a symphony. Um, they, in fact, I saw a, an orchestra perform from Rochester, New York, <laughs> uh, while I was in Omsk. Um, they had uh, movie theaters. Uh, I saw Les Miserables there, <laughs> the, the movie. Uh, so I didn't actually get the impression that, oh, boy, these people are desperately poor. Yeah. yeah I've, been to, I've been to Mumbai. <laughs> um, that's a different kettle of fish. I've uh, mm-hmm. been to Johannesburg. That's terrible, um, that place, or at least 20 years ago, 22 years ago. And I didn't get that impression from Omsk. And Alona had been to the United States. This part of her story may have been true to work at a summer camp in New Hampshire. Uh, so she'd, she'd, she'd been there. She just, I guess, happened to like the United States, which isn't surprising a lot of people do. Well, I'm looking at your picture uh, with her, and you have a great smile on your face, Jonathan. It looks like you were really happy. So was that, was that in the dating period, um, the pictures that you have of you guys together? Was, were you dating at the time? Because I know that after the fact is after the marriage is when it went downhill. But did you enjoy the dating part? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I uh, I did not. I'm the man behind the smile. Oh, there <laughs> and, you go. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I smiled for the photos. The photos also, of course, were taken because uh, when you apply for the fiance visa, you have to show that you've you, you know the person. And um, but I, I typically I always smile for photos. Even the, like, she's not someone, and I don't, I guess I can bash her because she was a criminal, but <laughs> I, I, I don't I, know I'll her. try not to sound like I'm bashing her. Uh, she's not someone I would have traveled 5,000 miles to meet uh, because our first conversation in a cafe in Omsk was actually pretty boring. She didn't say much of anything. And uh, uh, yes, I, I, I think I, uh, I know what many of your listeners won't like. Uh, what was I doing with a, a girl half my age? And yes, so she was young and uh, she was pretty. Uh, but what I uh, liked the most was, even though the conversations with her were not that uh, exciting, we didn't have any arguments. Right? Uh, so, uh, and, uh, and to me at that point, that was 
of, of value. And I thought, well, she definitely likes me. Otherwise, she wouldn't be, if she wouldn't have introduced me to her parents, she wouldn't be interested in, in meeting up with me at these different places in Europe. Um, she wouldn't want to marry me. <laughs> uh, and so I thought, um, you know, that, that other part would perhaps get better. And also, I had had a girlfriend once who hardly spoke. And uh, so I knew that you didn't have to be a deceptive foreigner seeking a green card to not speak, but still want to uh, date someone. So everything that I experienced, I, I, I thought it was good at the time because I was anticipating the marriage and that it would get better. So there was a, a period of about a year and a half when I didn't see her in person at all. She had claimed that her father uh, didn't want her to, to see me until the, um, I'm not forgetting exactly how she phrased it, because uh, I think her father didn't think that I was moving towards marriage, or at least she, she gave me that impression. And, uh, and so I didn't see her for about a year and a half. Um, but that year and a half didn't kill me because I, I, was, anticipating, I was anticipating at some point she would get the visa, we would get married, and then life would begin. Uh, so I had told myself all of these stories, which fooled me into thinking everything was fine, including how I met her. As I said, I wouldn't have traveled 5,000 miles to meet her because the conversation wasn't interesting enough. But I thought, oh, maybe this was why it didn't work out with the other woman, because this was fate or the universe uh, leading me here to a woman that I wouldn't ordinarily have decided to travel to meet. Uh, and so, yeah, I told myself all of these stories. It's okay, because at the time they weren't really stories. It was your life. And I, I, I mean, I totally, I get it. I get it. And the year and a half that you were separated, how did you communicate with her? So that was another red flag I should have noticed. We only communicated by Skype, but she only wanted to communicate about once a month. Now, the, the woman that I'd actually traveled to Omsk in order to meet uh, before it all fell apart, before I traveled to Omsk, we were communicating every day. We were either mm -hmm. emailing or Skyping. We even watched movies together. You know, we'd, we'd watch a movie, play it at the same time, hit the play button at the same time on our computers. But the, um, and then have Skype running. <laughs> but uh, with Alona, uh, she didn't seem to want any of that. And since, as I said, the conversations weren't usually that exciting, uh, I didn't mind so much, but yeah, I thought that was strange. But ultimately, I told myself, but she wants to get married. So uh, clearly, however, I am, it, clearly she's interested in me. Clearly, she, she wants me. Okay, and, and you, you wanted a family. Is that right? Is that why? Because I, I used to tease after my husband passed away, I got to be really close to with one of his friends who was my age. We were in our mid-50s. And I always teased Paul. I said, why are the guys dating these young 20-somethings? And he looked at me and goes, Deb, come on. You know why. I was like, yeah, but they can't carry on a conversation about anything, you know? Yeah, and yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking you've got this brilliant guy can, you know, traveled, has a professor, he's got lots going on in his brain. And then I heard you in an interview saying that you wanted to, you wanted to have a family. And so I, I said, I got it. I, you know, the 40-year-old women aren't going to be able to have the kids at that point unless they bring them into the marriage. So I see that part. But what I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out is why did you stay with her if, you, if, 
why? Or were you just so into it at that point that it was hard to get out? Because certainly you know that part too. <laughs> I'll answer with one word, Seinfeld. So on the TV <laughs> I show, never Seinfeld. Him. <laughs> okay, so on that show, he's always dating these women who are perfect, but he finds some small thing, which is usually completely ridiculous, for why he doesn't want to keep going out with them. And I thought, you know what, I didn't want to be like that. Now, you might think uh, not having animated conversations is, um, is not one of, is, you know, that's not a small thing. But as I said, I had had a girlfriend um, who actually wound up dumping me, but I had had a girlfriend who did not speak. You know, we would travel to a restaurant and, and the car ride, she wouldn't say anything. Uh, but that was just how she was, <laughs> mm-hmm. an American, um, in America. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I thought this is possible. And again, I, I made up another story. Um, this is where overanalyzing matters hurts you. Uh, I had heard that uh, people who are on the autism spectrum, some of them could have gastrointestinal problems, right? And, and Alona kept talking about some problems that she had. And so I thought, okay, maybe this is it. And maybe this is the reason why her parents were so friendly and happy, even though I was twice Alona's age, because they just wanted to <laughs> have someone, they knew someone needed to take care of this, this girl, <laughs> and, that, and that they were happy that this American was, was willing to do it. And so I told myself all of these stories. I thought, this is the girl who needs someone to take, take care of her. Um, and, uh, and I also thought, well, at some point, things will uh, open up. But it's not always the case that if someone, just because someone is 20, uh, she can't have a conversation. Uh, I, um, you know, well, I don't think I know anyone who's 20 now in a personal capacity, but, uh, you know, there are people who are 90 that I have conversations with. I could have conversations with someone who, who is 20 or who someone is 40. In fact, around the time I met Alona, I was, uh, uh, I went out a couple of times with someone who was 39. Uh, we went out a three times. And I even emailed a friend of mine that, you know what, I actually, maybe I like this woman more. And uh, my, uh, my friend said, well, maybe you should just forget about the Russian then. Um, but uh, then something happened with the 39-year-old. And you're right, a 39-year-old is going to need to have a child immediately. At one point, the 39-year-old started asking questions about tenure at, at a university. At that time, I did not have a position with tenure. I mean, I'd gotten it at Vanderbilt University, but I, as I said, I had to flee death threats and so forth in Nashville. So I didn't have that position. I hadn't had it for 10 years. Uh, the current position I had did not have tenure. And I was thinking she was sort of, she had done some research on me and she was trying to figure out if I had a stable job. And um, now this is all my, my impression of what she was trying to do. We didn't go out more than those three times. But as I said, here was the, the Russian mail order bride uninterested in my uh, future employment prospects, and then the 39-year-old in America who I thought perhaps was not interested because once she discovered um, or thought she had discovered that I didn't have a stable job at that point. I, I, I did get one a few months later, but the same one that I have now, but at that time did not have. So who, who, is, who is better? You, you do uh, um, make a salient point that if you, uh, my lesson, the lesson that people should derive from my experience, if they want to get married, and 
I suspect that they probably shouldn't. <laughs> is well, that that's another topic? <laughs> yes, yeah, another topic. But the lesson they should should derive is, yeah, you know, get to know someone over the course of years. I did, I thought, get to know Alona over the course of three years, but the time we spent in person was only about together in the same place, the same time was only about two months. Yeah. Um, And uh, so women hate this. They hate the guy who is going to be dating them for five or six years before making a decision. But unfortunately, that's the proper conclusion to reach, it seems, to really investigate, really make sure you know uh, the person. That's obviously not something that women would, would favor, but I don't know what else, what other conclusion... Uh, to reach. And if you're going to do that, then you can't be dating someone who's already 40. Because if you're going to get to know her for five years before making a decision to marry her, <laughs> then by that time, she really won't be able to have any kids of her own. There, even there if are, someone is 30. There are a lot of a lot of outshoots of, of this story. And, and I, as I was listening to some of the YouTube um, interviews you had done, particularly with, with the one down in, in South Africa, or I, I, I guess he was in South Africa, it was uh, the Greg Avenue yeah. podcast where you guys went, went off on, you know, what do men want to get out of marriage? <clears throat> and then what do women want? And I'm sitting there going, I, 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 was, I was just at a stupor, it wasn't a stupor of thought, I'm sitting there going, what the heck? But it was funny because, I mean, out of it came security, kids, and a husband that adores her. And I'm seeing her going, absolutely. I mean, that's why I got remarried. Security. I already had kids. But I had a husband who, who adores me. And I'm thinking, Jonathan just wants someone that will adore him and that he will provide for. And that's, you know, that's very traditional. And that is so much what, you know, in, in, in the online dating realm, in my um uh, experience with it, the women that have been scammed are the women, very, you know, obviously like us, like me, who wanted love, security, companionship, kindness, people that would, you know, appreciate them. And then to have all that ripped out from underneath you. And, and this is now we're going to change the topic a little bit to being the victim to this and what it does to your feeling of trust in a relationship. So, go ahead. What I discovered then is that I uh, couldn't trust myself because Mm. I then realized that I had no ability to evaluate someone. Um, And it was also kind of sickening because this was someone that I wound up getting married to. The day we got married, which was two weeks after she arrived in the United States, June 1st, 2016, uh, she um, asked me uh, if I was nervous or something like that, and um, and I wasn't. I was absolutely certain that this was the right thing to do. I didn't have any of the cold feet that you hear about that that grooms typically have or often have. I had none of that. So now I know that my way of evaluating people is absolutely terrible, um, and it can't be trusted. Don't blame yourself. Uh, uh, but um, also, even with her um, making the arrangement for the marriage, initially I wanted to, or with my making the arrangement for the marriage, but um, making it for a time that she wanted, I initially just wanted to, her to come to the United States and then get married three or four days later. Because at first she was going to be staying in my apartment rather than a hotel, and uh, I uh, thought, okay, we're not married yet. 
so let's get married very quickly. <laughs> then she didn't want to get married on that day because of some superstition about getting married in May, I guess. So she wanted to move it to, to June 1st. Well, if she were planning on scamming me, why even do that? Why so again, yeah. another example of how I, uh, I, I fooled myself. Then when uh, she started after the, the marriage and she started being very uh, rude and insulting. And um, uh, at one point I told her, oh, you tricked me. Because if you had behaved like this even once before you came to the United States, I never would have brought you over to the United States. Uh, and her reply was, oh, you tricked me. But she was always very um, quick with these, these glib uh, responses. What led to the eventual uh, point where I just had to leave was when she was so rude, so insulting, I thought, this is way over the top. Is she trying to provoke me into being out of control, which no one can do, but um, she didn't know that. Uh, and I remembered from a website called A Voice for Men uh, that a lot of women will try to do something like this when they want to get a divorce. And so I just decided to pack up and leave. This was the day or day after I had sent in the green card application. Mm. Uh, and so she must have thought she's home free, but she wasn't because I'd only mailed the green card application to the immigration lawyer, not to the U.S. government directly. And so I still had time to call the immigration lawyer and say, hey, don't forward that application. And I had moved out because I anticipated that, okay, once she figures out that she can't make me angry, uh, she may then just lie about it. And so I moved back to my original apartment, which I still had, because um, I wasn't paying month, month by month. I'd already paid for the whole year, uh, which I still had. And then that must have been when she realized she, what, her ploy wasn't going to work. And uh, about nine days later, that was the last time I ever saw her, although at that point I didn't know it. Um, and, uh, but when I was driving out of the apartment, uh, the apartment was on the 22nd floor of our building, and the parking garage, of course, was in the basement. Uh, she realized that I was moving out, and so she sort of ambushed me in the parking garage, running in front of my car. And she had a tablet, and I didn't know if she was filming me or if she was reading instructions on what to say. Uh, but that was when she told me that um, uh, maybe I've heard of the Russian mafia and that I might wind up in the news. Um, this was at 7.11 p.m. on that day because oh, I looked at my I looked at the watch, um, but I still thought that she was just angry, that there was no way my wife could be part of the Russian mafia. That's just completely preposterous and crazy. Uh, but then when, you know, about nine days later, when... Um, uh, she had said she just wants a divorce. I mean, I had said I wanted a divorce, and then I said I wanted marital counseling, but then she said she just wanted a divorce and to go back to Turkey. Uh, I uh, was going to take her to the airport uh, and, and did, but when I returned to the apartment, I saw that everything had been taken, or almost everything had been taken out of the apartment. I had tried to check it ahead of time before driving off to the airport, but my key didn't work. So she had somehow figured out a way to damage the lock so that my key wouldn't work. Uh, but more, more than that, she had told me that she couldn't have done anything when I, um, when I implied that I was going to check the apartment. 
and I felt so ashamed that I even questioned her. So even the, the last day I saw her, I felt she made me feel ashamed that I'd even questioned her honesty, when in fact, she knew all along that she had taken everything out of the apartment. And um, uh, two days later, when I realized, wait, how did she do that? Because there's a lot of stuff there. Um, I couldn't have done that with the three days notice that she would have had, because everything fell apart so quickly, um, in a city that was foreign, without a car. Um, she did require help and help organization and organization to commit a crime is organized crime. And that's when I realized, oh, so maybe that was the one thing she was telling me the truth about, that she was connected to the Russian mafia. Uh, and then I realized that everything was just a lie from the very beginning. It wasn't simply a marriage that fell apart. It was um, from the very beginning she had planned to defraud me in this fashion. And then it got worse, believe it or not. A year later, I had gotten some video footage from the apartment complex and it showed uh, the day before I was to take her to the airport um, at 4.19 a.m. She is coming down the stairs to the parking garage with some guy. And looking at the body language, I don't think she was having an affair, uh, but she went down to the parking garage and then came up two minutes later and that's the only footage that, that um, I could see. But I was thinking, so who is this guy? And he came down with her, so he must have been in my apartment. And just imagine, what if I decided to reconcile with my own wife one day before she was due to leave the country forever, or at least leave, leave, leave me? Um, I might have done that at early in the morning or in the middle of the night, because it is, after all, still my apartment. And if I've got 24 hours to go, I'm not going to wait. <laughs> so I, what if I had shown up in my apartment and this guy had been there? Right? Chances are um, I would have wanted him out of the apartment, and he probably would have refused. There might have been a physical altercation, and that physical altercation, maybe somebody could have stabbed me in the back with a kitchen knife, and then it would have been ruled self-defense. So I actually do think that that may have been part of the plan to kill me. Um, but obviously I have no more proof. I have no proof of that. Um, but, um, you know, if that had happened because of the crazy American laws, she actually would have been able to stay. Uh, and that's the problem with the way the FBI, the um, Customs and Immigration, uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, and even Border Patrol handle these situations. They are not taking obvious steps that they should take to minimize the abuse of the fiancé visa program. Namely, they should prevent wives from being able to stay if the marriage breaks apart. I would say even within 10 years, uh, but certainly within two years. Instead, these brides are on a fast track. They will get the green card after about four months, typically. Uh, that's these, these, I think that's the average amount of time. So, of course, they're, they're going to abuse the system. And then on top of that, yes, obviously, I want to take, every man wants to take, well, not every man, many men want to take care of their wives. But the U.S. government says, even if there's a divorce, if the wife winds up on the dole, the U.S. government um, will get that money from the ex-husband or, or can sue him to, take, to get that money. So basically, the woman knows that no matter what, uh, she could get taken care of financially. Well, that's a terrible incentive as well. And I know why they passed that law, because of the idea that there are all these evil men out there who just want to abuse um, uh, foreign women uh, and exploit them. 
But instead, we've created a system where the American citizens get exploited. And you know what? If I have to make a choice between an American getting ex- making a law to protect an American from being exploited and making an American law to protect a foreigner from being exploited, I'm going to side with the American and make sure that he doesn't <laughs> get exploited. And in particular, that should probably help um, in the other cases. But the, uh, certainly the law should, American law should favor American citizens. And if those changes were made, it, I suspect that that would decrease the number of criminal foreign brides. Okay. I'm going to, for a minute, I'm going to bring in Dr. Tim McGinnis. Tim is the founder of the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, or SCARS. And Tim has had some personal experience with this. Tim, comments on, sure. on uh, Jonathan's last comments. Look, this is, this is a very challenging situation because you've got a broad range of immigration scams that exist, and fiancé and bride scams are a notable part of this. But at the same time, you have a vast number of legitimate such situations. My first wife, we met in Costa Rica when I was living there, and when I moved back to the United States because of business reasons. I brought her as my fiance. Of course, let me just say I didn't follow the process because there's actually a simpler, easier way. We just arrived. She arrived as a tourist. Uh, We intended to follow the law, quote unquote, but ended up just getting married and, and putting through the application. It took two years to do this. From A protected point of view, there's a variety of ways in which you can protect yourself, which most people are not aware of. And one of them, surprisingly, is you can do a prenuptial for a foreign bride. And that prenuptial can include such things as a legal requirement binding to surrender visas, to surrender residency. So there are ways to protect yourself. But the bottom line is, Jonathan, truly you were fortunate that you, A, never had a confrontation with the guys that were moving the furniture out because they could have arranged a much broader variety of pain for you than stabbing you in the back, such Mm -hmm. as charging you with a crime, putting you in jail, and having to have you fend for your life while she owns effectively your financial life and future because Mm -hmm. she's your wife. Hmm. So it could have gotten much, much worse. You know, the irony is that the only major movie ever made about scams, uh, romance scams of any kind, actually deals with this very topic called The Birthday Girl with Nicole Kidman. Hmm. Um, you know, one of, one of the models that is very common is you go through this process, you get married, and six months later, after you're firmly committed into the relationship, whatever, then the Russians show up and they want something of you whether it's a professional activity, something that you're related to, you know, could be as simple as a student that some oligarch cares about gets a passing grade. It's a corrupting influence. And unfortunately for women, they're compensated well. They spend a couple years of their lives. They gain some money. They gain a future. But the simple reality is, you're right. You cannot know someone at long distance over a short period of time. And I speak from my own experiences in that regard. So I think the thing that is most important for people to realize is that 
scams happen exactly as you said. It comes from our own cognitive biases that blind us to the reality of the situation we stick ourselves in. And you know, our confirmation bias tends to confirm what we expect to be true rather than what is true. Uh, I was, uh, I think in 2000, I visited the, the Russian city of Ekaterinburg and was amazed by the contrast at that point in time. And I'm sitting in a, literally, an Irish pub in a shopping mall in an, in an ex-Soviet era town just after, a couple of years after, a few years after the fall. And every two, three minutes would come by a 20-something, of course I was 20 years younger in those days, about your age, uh, and the result was could have had anyone I wanted, but it would have led to the same tragic story. So in, in the world that we deal with, our focus predominantly is to pick the battles that we can win in the area of crime prevention. And unfortunately, there's almost nothing that we can do about the Eastern European bride scams because it truly is organized crime. And it's, it's one of those things where it's organized, it's multi-billion dollar, these agencies that have the stellar reputations are in fact owned by the mob. No one operates in that space without their permission or their consent. And there is nothing safe by going through an agency. The, the safest approach, if you're inclined to ever do it, get on a plane, go and spend a month in a town and see what happens. You're guaranteed nothing but at least what will happen will be spontaneous and real. It, it's funny, you were mentioning the possibility of teaching in China. I, in fact, am on the faculty of a university, uh, the Financial University of Guangzhou, China, where I have a, a second PhD. And trust me, she would not have been happy. <laughs> you probably wouldn't have been happy either because even the best of the universities in China, the facilities for teachers... Uh, both on campus and off are not spectacular. But the reality is this is what happens. Um, and it, it's not just Russia. Uh, there's another model where, you know, you'll meet uh, a Filipina or, or a Southeast Asian online, and you're dealing directly with this person. It's a social media connection. It develops over time. They don't ask for vast sums of money. They ask for small things like, I had an accident. Can you send me a couple hundred dollars? Or I, I need money for my rent. It's basic logical necessities, and it just goes on this way. Latin America, exactly the same thing. And the same kind of mafia exists in Latin America doing exactly the same things. Latin American, not Russian, but whether it's a, Brazilians especially. Brazil is one of the hotbeds for the Brazilian mafia-run romance scams. So it's there, there are these two flavors, in effect, and whether you're a man or you're a woman, but particularly if you're a man, and we don't talk about this much in our organization because men tend to be much more difficult to support. 
Their anger goes deeper, longer. Their trauma lasts longer, primarily because they won't go through the process. But the net effect is they are real women with real identities, with real lives, but there is a critical omission, and detecting that omission is the hardest part. You know, you talked about uh, the family. Well, the family was probably not mafia because mafias wouldn't subject their own daughter to this process. Oh, but you see, what, what I was thinking was that it wasn't her family, that they were fake. Well, you're probably right. Yes, yeah. they were her handlers. Yeah. And, and we find that a lot of the people that are in this space are, you know, ex-KGB. They're ex-spymasters. And they're using all the craft that they learn from manipulation to storytelling to, you know, to embedding, in effect, an agent in somebody's life. This is old Soviet-era spycraft stuff that the Russians were so perfectionist at. And there's, there's no easy story to, to tell people in these situations other than just don't go there. You cannot trust any agency anywhere in the world. I'm sorry to say that um, because there are some completely legitimate agencies out there in the world. Dating websites, you're going to encounter organized crime, and organized crime is just as vicious uh, from the Chinese side, the Vietnamese side, the, the Thai side, um, Indian side, as it is from the Russian or the Ukrainians or those that operate out of, out of Poland and Hungary still or what, what is now Serbia or Turkey for that matter. Nigerians don't do that very much, for example, but there's human trafficking everywhere in the world and they're involved in this. So congratulations in a weird kind of backhand way for surviving this, the experience and getting through it intact, particularly intact from, from an emotional point of view, because our experience is in the case of men, only about 5% of men come through a significant romance scam, whether real or fictional, with their lives intact afterwards. So congratulations on that. Well, Jonathan, well, we really we do want to honor you for speaking up. And there, this could continue on for another hour. I've got so much I wanted to talk to you about because it goes to, um, you know, victim blaming. And I know you've been, been subject to horrible comments by people. And uh, I got to the point where you just don't look at it, you don't read them, and you just say, you know what? When I'm speaking out, I'm not talking to that person that's going to bash me. I'm talking to the person that's been through it that needs to know that they're not alone. And there are, I'm sure, are a lot of people out there that have been through your situation that need to know they're not alone, but they will never speak up. So thank you so much for, for talking to us today. If folks would like to get a hold of you somehow, what's the best way to do that? Well, my website is lattistheory.net, but I'm sure that if you Google my name and math, uh, you'll find some email address associated with me or my personal website. And he's an amazing mathematician and has done some extraordinary things. So I want my, my, uh, my listeners to Google 
Dr. Jonathan Farley uh, and find out what he's all about. It's not about being a Russian scam. Jonathan's got an incredible mind and is doing some great things around the world. But in our organization, in Stand Up and Speak of Jonathan, thank you so much for bringing out your story and reaching out to me uh, because I, I saw that picture of you on Tamron Hall show and, and I've been there. I know that and I know the feeling of my daughter after the show goes, Mom, that was a little condescending on their part. And I'm like, yeah, but it, it you know it raised awareness of what's happening. So some, yes. sometimes those of us that are in that hot seat just have to realize that we're out to raise awareness. So thank you for doing that. And uh, if we can support you in any way, uh, you know, we're here for you. All righty. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicating, dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you've been a victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, or the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization here in Miami, and we're supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can make a small donation to, to our organization, please do so, and I will put that up on my YouTube channel. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfo products at BenfoComplete.com and use a special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being here. Go to my website, thewomanbehindthesmile.com for additional information and resources. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and watch the replays of these shows with video. They are extraordinary and, uh, and I learn something new every time I go and listen to them. So thanks very much. Enjoy the replays. Enjoy your day. Jonathan, thank you so much. Dr. Tim, thank you much. Everybody have a great day and we'll be here next week. Bye now. <laughs>